Welcome, welcome to Mission Church, where we are not perfect, so you don't have to pretend to be either. So it's been an adventurous morning this morning. Welcome. My name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Uh, Pastor Eric is spending a much-needed break uh, for his anniversary. I believe his 16th wedding anniversary, is that right? Somewhere in that range. 16th wedding anniversary with his wife, so he is not here this morning taking a break. Um, But thank you guys for being here. I am always glad to be here. Um, but this week, I would say, is particularly true. I've heard a, I've heard a lot of descriptions of the church gathered uh, in my time in, in church and all of those things. Lots of tweets, lots of things like that. But one of my favorites is Tim Keller's. He, he did this in a tweet, actually. It says, The church is a hospital for sinners where triage happens, not a museum for saints. I totally agree with that statement. That's not the only way to describe the church gathering. That is simply one of the ways to describe that. But I'm feeling that extra this morning. I think a lot of times we come to church and we put on a happy mask and a smiley face and we say we're fine when we're really not. And I just want to confess to you as one of your pastors that I'm not this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be preaching, but I am spiritually depleted from this past week. It has nothing to do with my wife, so don't... (laughs) freak out. It's not my wife or daughter. It's other things outside of here. It just feels like the devil has been attacking more. Um, and it, um, it has depleted me. So thank you guys for being the church. Thank you all for being here and causing this triage to happen because it is most uh, definitely affecting me this morning. So that has nothing to do with what we're preaching this morning. I just want to ask you guys if you would pray for me as I pray for you before we get started. So let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that our strength comes from you, our, our, our faith comes from you. You have more grace than we could ever need. You have more mercy than we could ever need. And I just pray that over all of us in this room this morning. I pray that you would move in this place, that you would move me completely out of the way, that I would have absolutely nothing to do with this other than the mouthpiece your spirit is speaking through. We thank you for your word and that it is profitable for teaching. We think it is profitable for life. And I pray that as we dive into it this morning that we would have open eyes, open ears, and open hearts to receive this message. I pray that if there is anyone here that is outside of a relationship with you, that you would save them in this place, not because Mission Church is awesome, but because you are awesome. And I just pray that everything that we do from start to finish would be about you, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. So Matthew 25, we're going to be finishing up this chapter, and this will lead directly into the Passion Week where, where Jesus is going to be killed. That will probably take us a little while because it's relatively important. So this is the last probably bigger chunk of Scripture that we're going to do, but we're going to finish chapter 25 today. Now this, for a little bit of context, What we're seeing here is Jesus finishing the answer to the questions we saw and all the way back in the beginning of chapter 24. So the disciples come to him, when is the destruction of the temple, what's that going to look like, and when are you coming back to end all of this and and return for your second coming? Jesus has said a lot of things since then. He's actually not said a lot of things that people give him credit for saying nowadays because they're biblically illiterate, but that's beside the point. They give him credit for things that he's not said. We have dove into those things as well. So we have looked at what is Jesus saying, what is Jesus not saying, but he has talked a lot since then, and he is finishing up this discourse. He is finishing up this answer leading into the week that will lead to his death, and he knows this. 
So today he switches gears a little bit. Instead of saying, or instead of answering the question of when will this happen, or vaguely answering the question when will this will happen, he more now focuses on how it will happen and what it will look like when it happens. So this is more of a focus on those things. So if you have been a Christian very long and you have let people know that you are a Christian, which if you haven't, that's probably a bigger problem, but if you are a Christian in this room and people know that you're a Christian, you have probably heard a lot of uh, silly questions about our faith. You have probably heard a lot of valid questions about our faith. You have probably heard a lot of difficult questions about our faith, faith some of those even being silly, some of those being valid. But one of the questions I would say all of us have either had to answer or seen or heard answered is, if God is so good and so powerful, then why does so much bad stuff happen in this life? I feel like everyone in here has probably heard a version of that question. Now there are many, many, many ways to answer that question. Many, many valid ways to answer that question. So please hear me. This this answer we are getting ready to give is not the only answer. It may not even be the best answer to this question, but I do believe it is the answer we see that Scripture leads us to here in Matthew. So we have alluded to this before in this sermon series, but simply put, Jesus is simply not as concerned about this life as we are. This doesn't mean he's not concerned at all, but our earthly life is absolutely not at the top of Jesus' priority list. He is concerned about our life. He is not most concerned about our earthly life. That's true whether you live 100 years or whether you live 100 minutes. Now, again, I want to reiterate, this is not to say Jesus doesn't care about our life at all. Scripture is very clear that if he cares for the sparrows and the lilies of the field, how much more does he care for us and take care of us and give us things that we need and take care of us through this life. We are made in his image and he loves us because of that. He cares for us because of that. But there is simply just no way scriptures like store up your treasures in heaven and not on earth, share in the sufferings of Christ, take up your cross daily could exist if Jesus is mostly concerned with this life and not the life after this life. He's so much more concerned with eternity than he is with the finite amount of time that we spend here on this planet. And we should be too. For ourselves and for others. But let's all admit it, that's very difficult to do. The here and now is here and is now. It's right in front of our face. We can see it. We have tangible results, sometimes immediate results. If I do this, this will happen right now. And that's what we want. We want immediate results many times, and it is hard to look at the long term, and it's really hard to look at 10,000 years into the future because none of us have any idea what that really looks like. And yet that's what Jesus asks us to do, is to be eternally minded. But why is it that Jesus is not most concerned with this life? Why is he more concerned with the life that is to come? The Bible tells us in many places that this life is but a test for the real life that comes after this one. James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So Jesus will test our faith to produce an endurance, a perseverance that will last until this day arrives, when he comes to separate the sheep from the goats. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are tested in this life to honor Jesus more so that we can have a better, more genuine faith that will honor him until his return. And just so we know, this is not just a New Testament idea. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This life is simply a test, and we should treat it as a test. That does not mean we do not take it seriously. Students in the room take tests very seriously because we know there are results connected to those tests. Practice for sports is very important, but it does not compare to the game. We don't measure success on wins in practice. We measure success by wins and losses in games. The military does not base success on basic training. It's what happens when the battle starts. Jesus treats this life with the exact proper amount of concern. And the reason we think that he doesn't is because we have elevated this life too high on a pedestal. We have made this life everything. This life the end all and be all. It is, not, it is that we show too much concern for this life, not that Jesus doesn't show enough. This life is treated as if it is all there is by our culture and sometimes, sadly, by the church culture and ourselves. Now, please hear me. I want to make the most of this life. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I want to spend time with them. I want to have fun with them. I want to spend time with my church family. I want to do things that are fun. I want to, all of those things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying this life, but I want to do all of those things with eternity in mind. And I think that is what we have seen through these parables, through this teaching, and through the answer to the question that the disciples asked Jesus is, we must do everything with eternity in mind. In the parables, we see work, we see play, we see money, we see parties, we see celebrations, we see life in general. And what do we see as the divider between the two categories of people in those parables? Those who were viewing all of those things through the lens of eternity and those who weren't. Those who were looking long-term and seeing things longer-term and those who were seeing things short-term. We see these divided. And now in these verses, we see how that will be done eternally speaking, eternally divided. We see from the beginning that Jesus is placing himself at the center of all of this. Even while it looks like this passage is about us being divided into two categories, and about human beings being divided into two categories, we must not forget that it is all still primarily about Jesus. Too many times we put ourselves and we put this life on a, on a pedestal and think it is more about us than it really is. And this is about Jesus. Look what it says at the very beginning of verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now we got to stop right there. And I know a bunch of you just had a heart attack. We got 16 verses to go. We just did like seven words. How long is this going to take? I don't know. I told Alan I would make sure he had enough time to get home in time. So that's all, that's all I can promise. Okay. We're on word seven here. When the son of man comes in his glory. Okay. 
We have to look at this, though, because this reiterates what Jesus is focused on here. We saw a glimpse of this in chapter 24 in the middle of it. But what we see here is that Jesus' second coming is going to be nothing like his first coming. It is going to be polar opposites. We see in his first coming that very few witnessed it, and yet everyone is going to see his second coming. We see in his first coming that he came in a manger. We see in his second coming he will come on a throne. We see in his first coming that he came alone as a baby. In his second coming, he will be accompanied with all of his angels. His first coming, he came to die. His second coming, he comes to judge. His first coming, he came to serve. The second coming, he comes to rule. First coming, he came to save. His second, he comes to, to reign. His first coming, he came as a lamb. The second coming, he is coming as a lion. And the, third, the first coming, he came as a servant, and he will return as the king. His second coming is not going to be like his first. Everything will change when this happens. Everything will be set right when this happens. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, everything is going to be made right, and he will take his rightful place on the throne of everything. Only this time we see that it is a throne of glory. It is no longer a throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, amen, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We see Jesus here has faced the same things that we have faced. So when we come to him and confess these sins, he can go, I know how you felt. I had to face that same thing, and yet without sin, he faced it. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is exactly what we're talking about at the beginning. I feel spiritually depleted. What should I do? Go to the throne of grace and beg Jesus to give me strength. Beg Jesus to give me power. Beg Jesus to give me more grace and more mercy and more faith in him than I seemingly have or I probably wouldn't feel spiritually depleted. And he says we can come as often as we like and drink of the well of grace because his grace never ends. It never runs out. We're never going to go to him. Jesus, give me grace. Ah, man, I'm fresh out. I just gave my last little bit to someone else. He's always going to have more and more grace. And we're welcome to come to that at any point. But what we see in Hebrews is here and now, in the present. When he comes back, his grace has been extinguished for those who refused to come to him in this life. In this test, who have failed this test, he will come now and sit atop a throne of glory and of judgment. This should sadden us for those who are outside of Jesus. This is what makes him God, though. We can't take this away from him. He is equal parts mercy and grace, but he is equal parts wrath and justice. And he has to be those things. Taking away or diminishing any of those four things that we just mentioned, mercy, grace, wrath, justice, makes him not God anymore. And then he's not worthy of worship any longer. He ceases to be worthy of worship if any of those are compromised. So once his grace is extinguished, once his patience we see in 2 Peter runs out for all of the people that he wants to come to know him because he is patient and withstanding our sin so that we have time to repent. When all of that is gone, then we will see him come in his glory. And we will see him, or see, I'm sorry, every nation in front of him being 
judged, being gathered to him to be judged. Now this teaching that Jesus is, is saying right here, he's saying, don't get it twisted in any way, he is saying, I am the judge. The Son of Man is him. He is going to judge the nations. That would have been a radical teaching in Jewish time. Because the Jewish people would have said only Yahweh can do that. Only God the Father can do that. No one else has the power or the authority to do that. And Jesus is making sure they know, I do. I have that power because I am God. I am the Son of Man that the prophet Daniel talked about when he prophesied that he is coming. I am that Messiah. I am, in fact, the Son of Man, and I do have the power, and I do have the authority to judge, and I am going to do so. He will judge, and he will separate every man, every woman, and every child. This is everyone. Every single person will stand and give an account in front of Jesus. And this is ultimately while we must fight fervently for religious liberty in this country. Now this, this is a small tangent to get us back to where we need to be. But it is the firm belief that God judges every man, woman, and child that makes us have to be able or have to stand for religious liberty, whether it's in this country or anywhere. The notion that we will have to give an account to Jesus is why we have to say no sometimes to baking a cake or why we have to say no to marrying certain people or why we have to say no to culture in some ways. This does not mean a Facebook status. This does not mean a tweet. This does not mean having an argument with one single person. This, I'm talking about the culture that is coming in, the government that is coming in trying to tell us how to do things. But this has to apply to all religions. We can't stand for the Christian faith to have liberty and re religious liberty and none others because we disagree with them. For us to have any credibility, we must stand up for religious liberty for all religions and then fervently plead to those people to come to know the gospel. But don't ask the government to do that for you either because even if the government agrees with your faith for a time, Russell Moore puts it best. He says, don't ask the government to legislate away your mission field. At best, you will make fake Christians. At worst, you will harden people to the gospel. The reason I bring that up is we must live in this culture with an eternal mindset. We must live in this culture of instant gratification. I cannot be the only one that has clicked on a YouTube video. The ad pops up, right? And you got to wait 20 seconds to watch it. You're like, I don't need to see it that bad. You just click right out of it. But I don't have that kind of time. 20 seconds is way too long. Then I spend the next 30 minutes watching videos that don't have ads in front of them, basically, is what I do. I don't have that kind of time. I do. Instant gratification is this culture's MO. It's the way we do things. It's me, me, me all the time. How do I feel? My feelings trump everything you're about to say. It's because I feel this way. I don't really care what you have to say. That's, this, that's the way this culture is. And the secular culture is continually moving in. And we must stand against it with an eternal mindset, knowing we are going to give an account to Jesus. But we stand and we interact with the secular culture. And here's where the difference is. For the sake of the gospel. Not just to, for our, to win an argument. Not just to be a contrarian. Being counter to culture for some arbitrary reason. Whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, is not the kind of counterculturalism he is asking us to display here. 
We must live in a way that is forever mindful that this day is coming when the Son of Man comes in His glory and we must all, every one of us, give an account for our lives. We must live in such a way that more and more people will be ready for this day because it is coming. We must live in such a way that we point to Jesus so that more goats can become sheep. And may we take no pleasure in the fact that people are going to be condemned to hell. Even though that is right, even though that is just, even though that is what God has to do to maintain being God, sin must be punished. May we take no pleasure in it. May we not say, I'm good, so whatever happens, happens. May we take no pleasure in the eternal punishment of those who are unbelievers, but may we live until till that day pleading with God to change as many of them as possible until we have no longer have either breath in us or this day arrives. And this all starts by living differently from culture, again, so that we can point to Jesus, not just so we can be different. So how do we live counter to this culture? How do we live a counter-cultural lifestyle? The next 12 verses tell us. Jesus reiterates, or he re repeats this whole list of six things four times here. He says, to the ones on his right, come into the, the kingdom because you did this, 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 and this. When did we do this, 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 and this? Then he says to the ones on the left, you can't come in because you didn't do this, 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 and this. When did we not do Jesus wants us to get this list. This is not just some things he threw out there. It is in here four times. Now, what we see here is a list of practical ways we can live counterculturally. This list is not an exhaustive list. There are many ways we can live counterculturally thousands if not millions of ways but this does seem to be the expectation the the baseline that if you're not doing these things you might want to check your heart you might want to check what you really are placing your faith in because these are the simplest things I've got and what did we learn last week what is who is faithful and little is given much so if you're not faithful in this little how is Jesus going to give you much now, we are not going to go through each facet of this list and talk them through and what does that mean. We could do that. It's just not the kind of church you're at. If we had MCs again this week, this is what we would do. But we do see a full list here. We are going to look at the list as a whole and how does that affect our living outside of this room. Giving food to the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, giving clothes to the naked, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. This is what Jesus says is going to separate those who are ushered into the kingdom and those who are not ushered into the kingdom. So the question here is Jesus preaching something that is counter to the gospel of faith and counter to the gospel of grace here? Is he proclaiming a works-based salvation? Clearly, the answer is no, or I hope that was clear. If it's not, the answer is no. In case anybody was out there, well, I don't know, is he? No, he's not. But what is he actually saying then? Because some people can read it that way. Some people do read it that way. They use this as a proof text. See, you do have to work your way into heaven. Yes, faith, but you also have to do these things. Jesus is not saying that your faith will be created by these acts. 
He is saying that your faith will be measured by these acts. These are two totally different things. These simple acts are the evidence of a true faith. They are the evidence of our salvation that we already possess. We already have this salvation. This is how we show we have this salvation. It doesn't make us saved. It shows we are saved. I spent all day Thursday, and by all day, I mean all day in court in Logan County. First of all, no offense to anyone that's in Logan County. It was an interesting day, to say the least, okay? If you're from there, you probably know what I'm talking about. But anytime I go to sit in court for a little while, for about an hour, I'm enthralled. The justice, I don't, thankfully, I've not spent much time in a courtroom. I've definitely never been in a courtroom where I was the one being called up there, thankfully. But for an hour, I'm like, oh, what's the judge going to do here? Oh, what, what did that? I wonder what that person did. That guy looks rough. He's, I bet he did something really bad. It's like a traffic ticket. It shows you can't judge a book by its cover. But So the, I'm sitting in court. After about an hour, though, I'm over it. I was there for eight hours the other day. Eight. But I did get to read some commentaries. And as I'm studying this text and what is Jesus really trying to say here? And I'm reading commentaries and kind of paying attention to what's going on and people watching and all kinds of things. I read this quote in a commentary by Leon Morris. It says, This passage deals with the evidence on which people will be judged, not the cause of salvation or damnation. We must bear in mind that it is common throughout Scripture that we are saved by grace and judged by works. The works we do are the evidence either of the grace of God at work in us or of our rejection of that grace. It was at the end of reading that sentence that I watched a young woman escorted from the lectern where defendants go to give their story to the judge straight to the jailer and put into cuffs and taken into jail. What she had done was failed two of her drug tests. They had... She had committed a crime earlier in her life. They had given her grace by saying, okay, you can just be on probation. Just don't do these things anymore. She comes. She's clearly done those things by her failed drug tests. And it was then that this quote made even more sense. You see, we can all fail a drug test in here and not go to jail. Failing a drug test doesn't send anyone to jail. Committing a crime, being told don't do that, and then having evidence point to the fact that you did that might send you to jail, like it did for this young woman. She was not sent to jail because she had drugs in her system. It was simply evidence to the judge that she had said no to the grace they had shown her. Here's your grace. Here's how you keep your grace. Don't mess that up. And she did, and there were specific consequences. This is what Jesus is saying. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot purchase a ticket into the kingdom. You cannot meet a quota of feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or giving drink to someone who is thirsty. This will not grant you access. It's simply the bare minimum of, of, the, of evidence of the grace you have received. It is a natural outpouring of the grace I have shown you that you will then show this to other people. It is by faith in the one who perfectly carried out these six simple commands that grant you access. But the evidence that shows that you have this faith 
is that you then show it to other people that don't deserve it any more than you did. You see, we, we know that we can't purchase our ticket to heaven. There's hundreds of scriptures I could point to. But we know that simply from reading this one. What does he say? Look at verse 34. It says, The king will t- say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit this kingdom. It is freely given. You didn't earn this. You're not meriting this. There's nothing you can do to gain this on your own. I am giving this to you. Inheritance is not something earned. Inheritance only happens when someone dies. Thankfully, Jesus died in our place so that we could inherit the kingdom that he had prepared beforehand. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are co-heirs with Jesus. This means we inherit the same kingdom Jesus does. We may have different roles, but we get to go to the same kingdom that Jesus gets to go to. There is no distinction made between real kid and not real kid in the Bible. We are adopted sons and daughters, and because we are true sons and daughters, we are entitled to the exact same inheritance. My childhood best friend and I were inseparable from the time we were three until he moved two hours away, but we're still great friends. We still stay in contact. Every, nothing has really changed whatsoever. I used to spend as much time at his house as I did at my own. We were just always together. When I went to his house, I, I wasn't told, make yourself at home. I was just already there. I was at home. That's, I didn't ask if I could eat this food. I just ate the food. I didn't ask if I could watch TV. I just did what I wanted. It was my house. They called me their kid. They're, I'm still her third son because she has two of her own, and I'm still... Now, there were two bathrooms in this house. There was a master bathroom, and then there was the other bathroom where all the kids used the bathroom, right? When it came time to get cleaned up to go somewhere, if we're in a hurry and we have to use both showers, which one did I use? Not the master bathroom. I never ventured into his parents' bedroom. I never, never ventured into their shower. I probably could have. They probably would have allowed it, but no, I'll, I'll pass. I'll, I'll just take a shower here. I'll wait for the other one to open up. You see, I was as much their child as, as their children were, but there were still a few distinctions to be made. I'm not written into their will. I'm not inheriting anything from them. This is not how it is in God's family. This is not you're kind of my son or daughter or you're basically my son or daughter. You are his son. You are his daughter. And if you are his son or daughter, then you inherit this kingdom, the whole thing, all of it. There's no off-limits areas of this kingdom. You inherit everything. It is all yours But only God decides who he lets into his family. Only God decides who he makes a son or a daughter. And therefore, if he decides that, then he tells us what an heir should look like, what a son or daughter should do in the process of this, what we should look like in this life. But what he tells us over the next few verses is not how you become an heir, it is how you know if you are an heir. This is how you know if you are set to inherit this kingdom. And this is the evidence that you know will be presented for your case or against your case, is these six practical things. 
Did you faithfully do the things listed? Did you freely give up your own self-made kingdom to inherit the far greater eternal kingdom? In essence, did you bear a cross so that you can now bear a crown? We discussed this just a few weeks ago. This is the reward of our faith. Faith, the evidence of our faith is these things. These works are not what get you the kingdom. We must know that. Doing good works are not what we trade God for the kingdom. Why would he trade his kingdom for filthy rags, which is what he calls our good deeds? These good deeds, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, visiting those in jail, all of those things, these good deeds cannot be traded for anything. These deeds are not a way to get something. It is a way to prove that you already have something. Ephesians 2.10 makes it very clear. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, we got to do good works, right? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already prepared these good works. He is already compelling you to go do these things. He is the one that has written this story. Christ has already prepared these works for us to do. We are simply the tools he uses to carry those out. If someone paints a beautiful picture, we don't go, man, that paintbrush is awesome. We, that's the tool. A house is not built by a hammer. It is built by a person wielding a hammer. And this is what we are in Christ. We are his tools. He uses us to carry out the good deeds that he has prepared beforehand. What causes us to walk in them is faith in this Jesus. It is seeing and savoring Christ for who he is. And that becomes our motivation to do these good deeds. The beauty of the cross must be what spurs us on to good deeds so that other people can see this Jesus for who he truly is. So that other people can see the beauty of the cross and then live for that being their motivation. And they can join our family and they can be adopted sons and daughters and they can inherit the kingdom with us. This is how you inherit a kingdom not how you inherit salvation. You cannot inherit salvation. This is what the Jews taught. Well, I was, I'm in the lineage of Abraham, so I'm in. I am God's people. You may be born of generation and after generation, your great-great-great-great-granddaddy started of being a Christian. You may have gone to Christian schools and a Christian college. You may have never missed a Sunday of church since you were five, and none of those things make you a Christian. Conversely, you may have fed thousands of hungry people. You may have clothed thousands of naked people. You may visit every inmate in Warren County Jail and none of those things make you a Christian. It is the motivation for why we are doing those things. John 3.6 says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So what we do out of our own flesh just because we care for people in a natural, general sense doesn't accomplish anything eternally. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, meaning flesh only produces more flesh. Therefore, as the Bible tells us, we must be born again so that when we do these deeds, we are doing them for the glory of Christ. All of these things only matter in light of who Jesus is. And then and only then, when we see who Jesus is, will we see the things we, in our lives, will we do these things that we see in Matthew 25 with the right eternal mindset, with the right motivation, with the right gospel intentionality will we do these things and carry them out. You see, if we are doing these things for our own selfish gain or our own selfish motivations, then just stop. Then don't do them. You're not doing anyone any good, any eternal good. 
This is what we see with those on Jesus' right and on their left, on his left. Some are ushered into the kingdom, some into eternal punishment, but both groups are surprised. When did we do this? When did we not do this? You see, because they were just living life as they saw fit. Both groups were just kind of living life the best way that they knew how. And some of them, in humility, realized we don't deserve that kingdom. What did we do to deserve that kingdom? And that's why they got the kingdom. And some of them, who may or may not have even done these things in some way, shape, or form, are still surprised. When did we not do that for you, is what they ask. And he's saying, when you don't do it for anyone, that's when you don't do it for me. They were just looking at Jesus and saying, we never saw you any of those things. We never did that specifically to you. And he's saying, no, the least of these. You see, they were living, the ones on his right were simply living life intentionally and an outpouring of the faith and love they had for Jesus caused them to do these things for the least of them. So this leads to the obvious question, is caring for the least of these, is it really that important? Only if you agree with what Jesus says. If you don't agree with what Jesus says, then I guess it's not that important. But clearly to Jesus, it is that important. If this is what he is going to use to judge the nations, it sounds like it's pretty important. So what we have to realize here is the magnitude of practical daily obedience. Just being obedient to Christ in your daily life has kingdom impact. You see, what we don't see on this list is Jesus didn't see, say those who gave up everything and moved to a foreign country. He didn't say those who adopted 30 kids. He didn't say those who died a martyr's death are who was ushered into the kingdom. He gave six practical things that we could probably accomplish this afternoon if we really set our mind to it. We could probably do all six of those things. You know, we look at Mark and Parker moving to Niger, Africa. We, we look at Jason and Jen Lewis moving to wherever Kazakhstan is and however cold it is there today, who knows. But we see them and we think, oh, they must be holier, and they may be holier than we are. But we look at their obedience and think it has a greater kingdom impact or it is of a greater magnitude than our obedience. And Jesus makes it clear here that that's not the case. He makes it clear here that moving halfway across the globe for missions is simply an outpouring of these six things. It's just God called them to do these six things there. You see, in Niger, everyone is the least of these. In Kazakhstan, outside of that one little nice area where Jen and Jason are, everyone is the least of these. The obedience they showed is the same obedience we can show by simply loving those who are right here. And then if God calls you to go do that somewhere else, you got to go. You can't say no to that. You've still got to go. But you go to carry out these six things for the sake of the gospel, not to pat yourself on the back. But if he doesn't call us to a foreign land or to somewhere else, that does not alleviate our responsibility to do that right here in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It certainly does not diminish the kingdom impact you can have right here in Bowling Green by simply surrendering to this way of life, this natural way of living in Christ. So here's where we get to the application. And the application here is not to just go do this list more. Oh, I'm, application, I'm just going to go do these things. 
We could get practical here and we could list off ideas for engaging in these six things, inviting people into your home, having neighbors over for dinner, inside your house, radical, sharing with them, holding every possession with an open palm and saying, Jesus, this is all yours. If you want me to give it away, it's gone and I'm out. Truly caring about people, listening to people's stories that no one ever listens to, serving your church, serving at local nonprofits, Hope House, Serving in all of these ways. These are all practical ways we can carry these things out. And all of these things are included. And there's many, 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 many more things I could have mentioned here. And we should absolutely be doing all of them. But I am convinced here that the application of this text is not to just go do these things arbitrarily. The application here is to see and savor Jesus Christ for who he is more and more and more. And these things will just happen. Pray that God would move in your life and give you a heart for these practical things, but that it would be an outgrowth of a deepened love for Jesus because of what he has done. Read your Bible expecting God to move in your heart and to give you ways and ideas of carrying these six things out, but not because the Bible is full of practical advice, because the Bible is full of Jesus, and we read it more to adore him, and as we adore him more, application happens. And we go to our neighbors and we care about them and we love them and we love them because we have been loved. We show them grace because we have been shown grace. It is an outpouring of a heart that has been captured by the amazing grace and mercy of Christ on the cross in your place that leads you to these six things. John, 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. May this be our prayer. Not that we would check some practical living boxes. Well, I fed the hungry today, Jesus. Aren't you proud of me? But that we would love Jesus so much that we would then love those we are surrounded by. The less thans, the poor, the castigated, the shunned, the nobodies. Because guess what? Outside of Christ and the value you find in him, we're all nobodies. It is only Jesus that gives us any value. It is only through the cross of Christ that we have value. So may we not fill up on head knowledge about Jesus. May we not write down little things. Oh, I can tweet that later. That'll make me look spiritual. That'll, that'll make people know I love Jesus. May we cultivate a living and active relationship with Jesus that drives us to serve our neighbors out of the abundance that God has given us. Showing grace because we have been shown so much grace. Serving because the king of the universe served us first. May we love because we have been loved. May this all begin with the recognition that we are the least of these. Every time we read that text, I guarantee you everyone in here when we're thinking of the least of these thought of people, right? Maybe not even people you know by a personal name. But you thought of groups of people. You thought of, oh, I could serve at this place. Or I could serve at this. Yeah, those people probably need my help. Nobody in here thought of themselves, including me, until I was writing this. I always thought of someone else, and we have to re recognize that we are the least of these, and Jesus served us in this way by dying for the ungodly while we were still sinners. And because of the beauty of that, we do that for others. Then we can look at other groups and other people and say, these are the least of these. May all of this simply be an overflow and a natural outpouring of our hearts 
like we see in these verses where these people are just living life intentionally. May this happen so much that we become like these sheep who didn't realize they were serving Jesus specifically. They were just serving because they loved Jesus. And Jesus identified with the people they were serving. May we truly love Jesus so much for who he is that we have no choice but to love others. Church, we've got to check our hearts. We've got to ask ourselves, if I am not doing these things, if anyone in here is saying, well, I'm not doing any of those things, if we are not doing these things, what am I not seeing in the gospel? What am I not seeing in Christ? What am I not realizing is true of me in Jesus? These are tough questions that sometimes, to be quite honest, we don't really want to answer because it gets at our heart. And while we are doing things, and while we are not doing things, and we have to ask ourselves, are these things really that important? I think the obvious answer is Jesus would say they are. So I pray and I hope today that today is not a, well, I've just got to go do these things and God will love me more. Because that's not what the text tells us. I pray today is that we see Jesus more fully today. What I pray today is that we examine our lives in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And because of that, because we see the beauty of that, that we live our lives, we pour out our lives, but with one goal in mind, with one eternal mindset, is that more and more and more people will also see the beauty of the cross and then they will inherit the kingdom with us. That's what doing things with the eternal mindset looks like, is doing things with the hope that God will change goats into sheep. That is why we do these things. That is why we gather here today, is to encourage one another to go and live this gospel. So that is what I want to encourage everyone here to do, whether you're part of mission or not, is to go live this gospel so that more and more people can inherit this kingdom. Pray with me.